0: Weeknights are rough in the late 1970s for Atascadero, California. Two related murders will go unsolved for 40 years, and one of them could possibly have even been prevented. These are the cases of the 77 murder of Jane Morton Antonez and the 78 murder of Patricia Dwyer. Hello, and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I am your host, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming back. And for all the newbies, thank you so much for trying the podcast out. Just want to take a second to thank everyone for the listens, the likes, the shares, the comments. I really appreciate any interactions that we get here on the podcast. And um, if you can just continue to share, that would be awesome. Just want to grow the podcast. I know there's a ton of podcasts out there. But for this little niche we have, there really isn't a lot of exposure. So anything you can do to spread the word, uh, we really appreciate here. For those of us who want to make a donation to the show, you can find me at Buy Me a Coffee. I'm really just looking to cover the cost of the show and then also would like to be able to make a donation to the DNA Dill Project, um, adopt a dough at some point, and uh, donate directly to that cause. So here we find ourselves this week in California. And our notable source this week is from the Washington Post, right after the announcement was made. And with that, let's get into it. So Atascadero, California, has a population of about 16,000 back in 1980. It's uh, well over 20,000, I think well over 25,000 at this point here in in the 2020s. It is the halfway point on the road from Los Angeles to San Francisco on U.S. Route 101. And there's really nothing notable that comes out of the town except for our coverage here. However, Atascadero, California is in San Luis Obispo County, which also has a city called San Luis Obispo. And this is where Krista Smart disappeared in 1996. So the area is well known in our true crime community here, but just maybe not so much for the pop culture. For our regular listeners, we are in the county just west of where our Kern County Jane Doe was found back in 1980. And we're going to start with Jane Morton. We do have two two victims here that we're going to be discussing, but we're going to start with Jane Morton, who was 30 when she was killed. She was born on January 19th of 1947 to Mother Mary and Father William and had two younger sisters, Barbara and Elizabeth, and also two brothers, David and Jeffrey, although I'm not sure when exactly they came along in the family timeline. So we have mom and dad and five kids. Dad, William, is a real estate agent and mom works for the county as a technical services programmer. Not sure exactly what that is, but that's what she did for her working life. And the family is growing up in Atascadero. Jane was very well liked and popular. And by all accounts, she had a lot of friends. Now, some of these dates are going to be murky, so just bear with me here. But by my trusty calendar calculator, Jane is going to get into a pretty tight spot before she graduates high school. She and her high school boyfriend, Carl Antones, get pregnant during her sophomore or junior year. And Jane gives birth to their daughter, Michelle in 1963, 1964 ish. So yeah, Jane is going to be an unwed teenage mother in the 1960s. Yikes. And I don't mean yikes in the sense that, you know, she's a bad girl, she's a whore, she's a tramp or anything like that. I mean, it's the 60s. Um, just as much as we don't want teenage pregnancy now, just having sex out of wedlock was a horrific thing to to, to do back then, right? So um, girls are hardly ever allowed to be even alone with boys in that era. It's like, why do we think that drive-in movie theaters were so popular back then? <laughs> so this is the age when a pregnant teenage girl... Well, what what would they call it? They would just, you know, go visit their aunt or their cousin out of state when she's just kind of mysteriously starts to gain weight and people are starting to notice. And then the girl comes back like six months later and she just seems to be really all sad and depressed and doesn't explain why. So I'll explain a little bit. For those of us who might not know, back in the day, like we said, it was the worst, worst, worst thing that could happen to a young woman, especially a teenage girl that would get pregnant out of wedlock. So pretty much right up until Roe versus Wade allowed women to have legal abortions, these girls would be sent off to schools. And they would be with other girls who were in the same predicament and they would be put to work and lectured about their lack of virtue and, you know, their their mingling with the boys the way they shouldn't be mingling and all this stuff. And they would have to wait out their pregnancies and have the babies and then be forced to put them up for adoption. And then they would be sent back home all nice and pretty and ladylike again. was a horrible practice as you can imagine and there is a ton of information out there about these schools so definitely look them up if you're interested but for what it's worth Jane's family did not send her off so we are happy for her however that did mean that the only other option was for Jane and Carl to get married but hey it is still better than pregnant military school and not having rights to your own child right so Jane's family let's quote let's um, her and Carl go this other route, and her and Carl do get married, and at least for them, they're going to be able to keep the baby. Now, Jane was now in her senior year when daughter Michelle was born. I'm not sure where they live or how they supported their little family, but she was able to complete high school on time, and she graduated Atascadero High School in 1965. Now, we would, we would think that this would be a very high point in Jane's young life, but it will be overshadowed by... A horrible family tragedy that happens the same year 16 year old sister barbara dies in a horrific car accident so this is a really rough few years that the that the morton family is going through we don't know when jane and carl did get married but they were divorced by 1976 so it was very short-lived Jane will complete some college nearby at Cuesta College, but she never graduates. But I mean, kudos to her for at least starting college. I mean, could you imagine you're a single mom with a toddler now? You're back living with mom and dad after being divorced, and you're one of like four kids living in the house. That's a lot. That's a lot and a lot for mom and dad. But Jane's not going to throw in the towel on her life just yet. By 1970, she's going to start working at a local serv- social services office as an eligibility worker. And I guess it's just one of those people that like process your application for public assistance or something like that. Um, by 1972, though, mom has retired from her own job because of her failing health. She's got some really bad heart problems. And soon after that, it's decided that Jane is also going to quit her job and she's going to stay at home and take care of mom. And it is around this time that Jane makes a really tough decision to have Michelle go live with Carl. Carl has moved out of the state, and he's up in Portland at this point, Portland, Oregon. And according to Mom Mary, this is because her own health condition was so bad that most of Jane's attention really was on her. So that is, like we said, a really rough start to adulthood. You're a young mother and wife before you even graduate high school. And then you're a single mother having to give up your daughter indefinitely so you can go take care of your ailing mom. And you're you're not even 25 years old yet. But there is some sunshine that comes into Jane's life. Um, she does find love again in a local construction worker who worked for his dad's business. And this is going to be John Stanhope. Now, they started dating in 1971, and he and they were engaged to be married in early 1978. And now that her and John have these plans to get married, she's got long-term plans that she's, that she's developing. And she's starting to talk to Carl about getting Michelle back to come live with her. And here we are in the fall of 1977. Jane is 30 years old. And just to recap some of the things that are going on in 1977, yours truly me, I am two months old. Uh, Elvis died three months ago in August. Sorry to remind everyone And Star Wars had just premiered in May. So that was like this whole opening of this whole new era in movies. Uh, Punk rock was becoming mainstream on the radio and on TV. We're all watching um, All in the Family, Three's Company, and The Love Boat. Also in 1977, for technology, Apple releases the Apple II computer. Um, It does not have the monitor, like hard drive in one type deal yet, but you can still get it for $1,300 which is $6,000 in today's money. Wow! Finally, my very favorite trivia for the year of 1977 is that the album Hotel California by the Eagles hit number one on the Billboard charts just the second week of January and five weeks after it was released. Jane and her family live on El Camino Real, I think. Um, It's spelled real, but I think it just translates into road. It's a residential road that's parallel to US 101, Nowadays, this road is hopping with all the foods and all the shopping and busy intersections and stuff, but at the time, it was a, a lot more empty and definitely not as bustling as it is now. And on the night of Thursday, November 17th, around 7.30 p.m., Jane leaves home and she's taking the family's 1972 Dotson to go hang out with her friend Vicky. But Jane does not make it to Vicky's house, and she doesn't make it home either. Later the next morning, brother David notices that Jane still isn't home from last night's outing, and he decides to go looking for her. Finally, around 2 p.m., about a mile from home, off a dirt road, David finds the, the Datsun. Oh, this poor man. He finds his sister dead in the back seat. She was partially nude, and her throat was cut. For the initial investigation, police do not find anything in or around Jane or the car that gives any obvious clues as to who could have perpetrated this. Um, They do tell us that she has no other wounds on her, but except for the one cut that it took to kill her and the sexual assault that she suffered. Um, But they discovered that the sexual assault at her autopsy. And they tell us they don't even see like another set of tire tracks that would lead to another car that was there. So they think that the killer must have left on foot. Now, of course, they're going to interview all the friends and family. Mom says Jean was terrified of picking up hitchhikers and she knew the dangers of making herself vulnerable to being raped or attacked. And she would never knowingly put herself in that kind of vulnerable position. But police do get some tips that do come in, although nothing really seems to pan out There is a possible witness, though. Um, Jane was seen picking up, or at least driving with, an unknown man. Nothing really seems to pan out here either because they say that it was never officially verified. Now, I don't know what that means because the witness is telling you. So if there's no other witness, then, yeah, how can you verify it? But the witness is telling you that there was a man in her car. And she was clearly not taking her own life in that car the night before. So why aren't you considering this validation? I'm not sure. Now, also when the family looks at the Datsun, they do tell detectives that the car has some new dents and dings in it. Um, I'm thinking, I was thinking when I saw this, that maybe she was forced by another car onto the dirt road where this car was found, you know, like, you know, like when a car just like bumps into another car, side swiping it. Um, because well, what else could there be? Like, what is the, any other explanation? Because she hadn't been beaten. So it's not like she was, she had, or her body had caused these dents and dings during a fight or something. Um, I'm not really sure. To try to generate more tips and leads, the sheriff's department does create 250 flyers that they send out to the local residents. Um, the best they got is this lady saying that she saw a man get into the Datsun, but they're not really taking her seriously. And we don't know why. The first thing we think of when we have a dead woman is, was she romantically tied to anyone? Is there any reason that someone would want to kill her? What about the boyfriend? What about the husband? So they, I'm guessing that they do talk to John, but I didn't actually see anything in the research. So um, he was a fiancé after all, but they don't even mention him in the, in the newspapers aside from the fact that he existed. Um, so I'm guessing that they did rule him out pretty easily. And at that point, weeks are going by and the Morton family is trying to come to terms with what has happened to their daughter and sister, um, trying to figure out with the police what could have happened to her. Why did she let this man in the car? If that's what happened, was she run off the road? We don't know. And then seven weeks later into 1978 and the second week of 1978, we're going to have another murder and it's going to be brutal as well. We have... Patricia Irene Dwyer, who's going to be 28 when she was killed. Pat Dwyer was born on November 13th, 1949 to Beryl and Mr. Dwyer. I could not for the life of me find out her dad's name. Um, Beryl was originally from England and she met her husband, who was an American soldier during World War II overseas. Aw, that's so sweet. And they fell in love and they got married and they decided to come back to the States and settle down on the coast of California in Atascadero. Pat was the older of two girls and she had a younger sister named Anne. And that's pretty much all I get from her younger life. Um, By the time 1976 comes around, she's working at the Atascadero State Hospital as a psychiatric technician. And again, I'm not sure what they do. I'm guessing helping psych doctors perform psychological testing. Not sure. Now, supposedly, she had a very active social life, just like Jane did, um, and she was, quote, known to have dated several men, unquote. This is a pretty juicy detail from Pat. Her cousin tells us that she once told him, quote, I know I'm not pretty, and I know I'm fat and all the rest of it, but I can still pull the guys. That's right. good for her. Patricia never married, um, which is not common for a woman in her late twenties in the 1970s, but at the same time, do what you want to do, girl. David, her cousin does tell us, quote, she was a fun loving girl. And you know, wherever we went, she could talk to people. She could have a laugh, drink, smoke. And that was Pat. She loved life. Unquote. Pat's niece, Monica, who was five when she died, said that her aunt never had a problem just being herself, and she didn't have a problem with people being upset with her. Pat actually took Monica on a special like aunt-niece date once, and she got Monica's ears pierced behind her mother Anne's back. Whoa. And Anne was not too happy about that, as you could imagine. But Monica loved her new earrings, and she absolutely adored her aunt Pat. So that just goes to show you the kind of lady that Pat was. She was just one of those independent women who were satisfied to be single, but she had no problem, as we say, pulling a guy every once in a while. And she was very involved in her niece's life. So she was able to have that kind of motherly role as well. At the time she was killed, Pat was not dating anyone specifically, but she did have a special love in her life, her dog, unit. He was a Siberian Husky and she took him with her over to mom's house to visit, Anne's house to visit. And the dog himself was just as big of a presence as Patricia was. Everybody loved him too. So now we're in early 1978 and Pat is living alone in her rented house on Del Rio Road. And on Tuesday night, January 10th, Pat is talking to a friend on the phone. I guess there's talk about you know what are you gonna, what's what are your plans for this tonight or whatever? And she says, "Well, I'm not going out. I'm not doing anything. I'm just gonna get some grocery shopping done. And this house is a mess. I'm gonna I'm just gonna clean up around here." And then we have to come into Wednesday afternoon, sometime around three forty five p.m. on the eleventh. Patricia, um, she is discovered by a friend that comes to a house to visit. She was laying on the living room floor, half naked, just like Jane was, and there's a knife sticking out of her chest. Unit was laying right next to her, all red from her blood, nudging Pat to try to wake her up. During the initial investigation of the scene, police do figure out that the knife that Pat had been stabbed with was from her own kitchen, so whoever did this to her didn't even bring his own weapon. He just came in and found a weapon while he was there. Her autopsy also revealed that she had been raped. When police interview friends about Pat's case, they say that she would never let a stranger inside her house. So police are asking, well, was it someone that she knew then? But then they find out that she always kept a key under her front door mat. So was it a stranger after all? Well, somehow he did get past a dog. He got past Unit, who is a Siberian Husky, not not the smallest and most timid of dogs. Um, so who knows? Um, and I do hate to tell you, but unit was never the same again. The family reports, he, he was very nervous and very jittery all the time. And he was always just on edge poor puppy. The whole family of course is devastated when Patricia is killed and mom is so affected. She just, she just, she's not able to get control of her emotions. And she ended up needing to be hospitalized because her grief was just so unbearable. And to make all this even worse, the police tell Anne that Patricia's family photo albums were laying open on the table inside the house. So she needs to stay alert and keep her family safe. Oh, my God. Uh, It's too much. Too much. I don't know if I could do that. Like, How do you continue to live this life? Um, Your sister was just brutally murdered in a home invasion, and then you come to find out that it's possible this guy whoever did this knows about you. Maybe, maybe he rifled through an address book too, even, you know, maybe he knows where you live. Maybe he knows your face. He knows your face now because of the photo albums. Is he coming to get you? Could you possibly be on his list? And I'm, I really think that the first thing I would do, especially if I thought that my family and I were possibly like going to be targeted is I would just pick up and leave. I would just be like, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. The person, whoever did this, I'd be terrified, absolutely terrified. You want justice, but at the same time, you can't be living a life like that for me at least. And Pat's family does do that. Actually, um, her father had passed away at this point. um, So it's just mom and Ann and her family and they do decide to pack pack up and they move back home to, and they move back to Beryl's home in England. Um, They don't stay too long though. Um, They do come back to San Obispo County within the next few years I guess they just um, they just didn't like really like it over there in England, and I think there was also a mention of um, financial insecurity over there too. Now, like we said, Monica was five years old when Patricia was killed, and she does remember the loss of her aunt, which is so horrible and so traumatic. But it wasn't just the mourning of her aunt that she had to deal with; her whole lifestyle changed because now there's this cloud over us, thinking, you know, is 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 he coming for us? Anne wouldn't let. Monica go out and play like she used to be able to. They wouldn't go out, you know, enjoy nature. They wouldn't go take day, day trips, you know, to the nearby lake. Um, th- they wouldn't do these things because there was always that fear that there was someone who was going to come get them too. And so now we have two families in Atascadero, two months apart, trying to make sense of all the loss that they are now facing and the possible threat of another attack. And the police have a rough job ahead of them. Sheriff's department begins to compare the murders. So we've got a lot of similarities here that lead to the belief that this is being done, that these murders were committed by the same person. Jane and Pat are both from Atascadero, obviously. They both have active social lives and both often went to this local bar to party. And this was the Tally Ho Tavern, which sounds like my kind of place because I'm a huge like pirate lover, I mean the romanticized version at least. Um, they actually had a lot of the same friends too, um, whether it's through um, the bar or maybe their other associates. They didn't really, but they didn't know each other from what we can tell. They just like had these ties to the same groups of people. Um, the closest tie that um, they were able to come up with was that Jane's brother Jeffrey worked in the same hospital as Patricia, so. James' brother knew Patricia. So that's really rough for him too, because aside from losing his sister, now he also is losing somebody that he knows as a work associate for the autopsies for both women. Um, they were both killed in the middle of the night or early morning on weeknights. both had their hands tied behind their backs and both had been stabbed once, um, to, to literally get the job done, uh, Jane's was sliced in the neck and Patricia was a, a deep, deep cut into her chest. Part of the investigation, like we've seen in other cases, is the police are going to look into the locals uh, with criminal records, right? Who do we have in town here that are known to be sex offenders or other kinds of violent criminals? So they get a folder of photos together, and they have the ladies, families, and friends look over them. But no one recognizes any of these felons or these these local sex offenders. So there's a dead end there. Um, There are rewards that are put up by the town to gain interest and gain some kind of, you know, gain even more movement. The owner of the Tally Ho, um, the local dive bar, he sets a jug on the bar to collect funds as a reward for helping to solve Jane and Pat's murders. Within a few weeks of of Patricia's death, um, just into like early February, the jug has about $200 in it, which is going to be a little over $800 nowadays. So all this cash is coming from people that that knew Jane and Pat. They weren't like the best of friends with them, but they did know them because they were, these were young women. They were regulars at the bar, just like all these other people. And I would think like the mood in that place after these two murders just must've been so, so dark and and so horrible. Um, especially for the female patrons. Um, you know, like is this guy targeting single women that go here um you know I'm thinking you know am i I'm a single woman? I, I come here a lot to hang out. I, I not want to unwind. I want to unwind. I want to get a buzz on, maybe hook up, you know, am I next? Um, you know, they weren't taken from the bar parking lot. um they were they were by home and at home, but they do have this commonality between them. So am I safe? It, like is it too late for me already? Am I already on this killer's radar? I don't know. I mean, I wonder how many ladies really did decide to stop going out with their friends after this, especially when you think about the fact that when you go to a bar, if you go in there to drink, likely you're going to have a few drinks. You're not going to be your sharpest self when you leave. And if you're leaving alone, it's got to it's got to be rough. It's, it's it's not easy. So yeah, everybody's affected in this town. The local contractors association is also going to put up a reward. They're offering $500 for anyone who can help solve the case. Um, And that's going to be about $2,000 in today's money too. So I'm thinking that this was initiated by Jane's boyfriend, John. I mean, because remember he was a construction worker and, you know, it's the contractors association that's putting this $500 up. Then we get a pretty colorful character of a man. Uh, he comes forward. Um, he he is he's got the best of hearts. His his name is Marvin Cothin. or Cothin. Um He's old. He he's a retired local businessman, um, and he tells the local newspapers that he's facing certain death in the coming months here because he's got really bad diabetes and it's not under, under control. He says when he finds out that the reward to date is only seven hundred dollars, he just decided, listen, I'm gonna put up my own money to weed out the killer. Um I don't think that the seven hundred is enough and the community needs to do better. I'm just gonna pop in another thousand dollars on top of the reward fund. And he even invites the killer himself to go to his own house to confess to him. He's like, you come to me and I'll just give the thousand dollars to anyone else. I just want to see this guy put away. Now I'm not sure if asking a murderer to show up at your house um, with, yes, his street name was in the article. Um, I'm not sure that's the best way to get a murder arrest, especially when you're not in the best of health and you're older, but I mean, more power to you, Marvin. So at least we got that. Now in the end of 1978, we're going on, we're, we're past the year for Jane's murder and we're coming up on a year for Pat's murder. The police are still questioning and investigating multiple possible suspects. San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department Detective Sergeant John Hasty will tell the press that all but one have been ruled out. Now they figured out that he knew both Jane and Pat. Um, he's never been named in the papers, but he was supposedly a 32 year old and he worked at Atascadero State Hospital. Police tell us that they questioned him for like upwards of 30 hours. I'm not sure if he's like in the Interrogation room for that long, or if they let him go and they come back and then they they ask they interrogate him again, but in the end he never gives anything up and they realize they really don't have any concrete evidence against him. Um, Remember the DNA testing was not existent back in the seventies, so it wasn't like they could even use that or wait for the lab to come back there. So finally, police decide you know maybe we just have the wrong guy here. We're just working up the wrong tree, and they let him go and they take him off their list. And as too often happens in these cases, Jane and Pat's murder cases go cold. Police have nothing. And the years go by, and we're starting in 1978. We're going past 1988, past 1998, and into February 2005. DNA from both women's crime scenes are compared now because technology has come a lot farther in the last 27 years. And the cases are going to be officially linked by the DNA. So we can now confidently say that they were killed by the same man. But then we have to sit on our hands again for another 10 10 to 15 years and come all the way up to 2016. In June 2016, we have this lady named Charlotte Gibbon. Um, She's just a regular old lady, just living her regular old life. But she does call up the new cold case unit at the sheriff's office. And she says, listen, I need to sit down with a cold case detective and I want to sit down now. And she sits down with detective Clint Cole. Um, He's now the new cold case guy at the sheriff's department. And she talks his ear off for like two and a half, three hours about Jane and Patricia's cases. So who is this lady? Well, it seems that Miss Charlotte had made herself an armchair detective over the past few years. She had grown up in Atascadero, and as an adult, she became very intrigued by the Jane Antonis murder case. So she began rummaging through the stacks at the Atascadero Library and their historical society, and then whatever the police department would give her access to, whatever files they had that they decided would, would be public and after months and i think it was really years she finally puts together this like war book of information and presents it to detective cole and cole for his part he tells her that he'll he's going to go over all the work that she's done and he's going to get back to her which is probably the last thing that anyone in this position wants to hear because it sounds so cliche like i'd be sitting in my car after that meeting being like you didn't listen to me you didn't say the right thing to me not that he could say any right thing because he literally said, I'm going to look it over and get back to you. But I would still not be confident that he's taking me seriously and that he's just brushing me off. But amazingly, in this case, Cole does make good on his word. And he actually starts digging into the murders from 1977 and 1978 that are now almost 40 years old. So thank you, God. And thank you, Detective Cole. And thank you to Miss Charlotte, because without her coming to him and talking his ear off about these cases, we may not be where we are today. Detective Cole has finally decided it's time to get some answers and we are looking to get some fucking justice, right? In 2017, he's going to go back to that one particular guy that they questioned for like two days or three days, and they're going to call him up for some DNA. He'll give it, They'll run the tests, and they're going to finally rule him out as a killer because his DNA is not a match. Now, in this case, Cole is not going to be actually calling up Parabon or o- Othram. They're going to be, he's actually just going to use the Department of Justice Forensic Laboratories out of California. He's going to start there. And in March of 18, he sends a DNA sample from one of the scenes over to the California DOJ lab and ask them to conduct a familial search within the CODIS system. And soon enough, they tell Cole that they have a possible brother of the suspect, and he's locked up in prison. So now, this isn't their suspect for these specific murders, because the DNA is not a complete match, but it is a pretty high Centimorgan Morgan match count. So Cole should look into this inmate's family. And that is what he does. And on April seventeenth, two 2019, the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department announces that the 1977 murder of Jane Antonez and the 1978 murder of Patricia Dwyer were perpetrated by Arthur Rudy Martinez. So who is Arthur Rudy Martinez? Who is this piece of shit this time. Yes, I did not say he was arrested and we know what that means at this point. He has died, which totally sucks, but we're still going to get into the story. He was born on June 26th of 1948. And by 1977, this piece of shit Martinez was on parole after serving time for attempted murder and rape, which is not a shocker. So like we've seen many times before, this piece of shit was no stranger to the criminal justice system, and he's diving right into violent acts against women as soon as he turns 18. He's 18 years old, and he's in Selma, California, and he decides he's just going to rob this local store. Now, this must have been like after hours for the shop because he like actually breaks into the shop, um, and he's caught off guard, though, because there is the shop owner that is still there, and we have a 48-year-old woman. Um, She's there, you know, probably just cleaning up after work. And instead of running off, he decides he's going to make the best of it by tying her up and raping her. Afterwards, he shoots this poor woman and then he takes off. Now the bullet goes into her forehead, but the angle of the gun actually had the bullet going pretty much straight out through the top of her head. So lucky, I guess, not lucky in the grand scheme of things, but lucky for her, at least she she wasn't killed in this attack. Um, this is also around the time where he attacks a 26-year-old woman on her front lawn, shooting her in the hip before he runs off. Like, dude, what the fuck? What the fuck are you doing? And sorry, don't know anything about his early years. Don't know if he was born in California. Don't know, don't really, and we don't know anything about his family life. We don't know anything, but... This is what he's um, cool with doing when he's a young adult. For these attacks, Martinez was identified and picked up and charged. He pled guilty to both crimes in June of 67 and got his first, yes, first prison sentence. Um, He was sentenced to consecutive terms. Not sure how long they were, but even though, and even though they were consecutive, he's still eligible for parole in 1977, just 10 years later. So two attempted murders and a rape and 10 years and you're out. Okay. Now we don't know what link that he had to Atascadero because like we said, he's from Selma, but, but the cities are 120 miles apart. And this is where he tells the parole board that he's going to live if he gets let out. So they agree and Jane and Patricia are going to lose their lives for it. Once in town, Peace shit Martinez gets a job as a welder at a local business And although I didn't read anything that says this, I am wondering if he started hanging out at the Tally Ho. He had been living in the county for about eight months before he had left his semen on Jane Antones in the family car. And a few months after that, he left his semen on Patricia in her house. And a few months after that, he decided he was going to pack up and move north to Spokane, Washington. Once in Washington, piece of shit, Martinez. Of course, he's not going to clean up his act. In all reality, he just got away with two murders. Um, He's going to be convicted, though, of multiple robberies and two more, two or more rapes in 1978. So that's five sexual assaults that we know of now. And for these altogether, but in Washington, they only know of at least two because they were recent in the summer, in the spring or summer of 78. And for these convictions, he's going to be sentenced to life in prison, thank God, and was officially locked up again in November of 78. So, of course, we have the county sheriff a thousand miles south in you know San Luis Obispo. They're still scratching their heads and wondering if this guy is going to be committing any more heinous crimes in the area. They have no idea that he's taken off. Now he was committing more heinous crimes. He just wasn't doing it in California. He was doing it in Spokane. Um, But fortunately for any possible future victims, Spokane, you know, did find him out and got him off the streets. Um, Here we have again, another piece of shit, rapist, murderer serving jail time for a violent crime, getting out on parole and committing the same crimes within just months of getting that out of jail. And Now I'm going to admit, hindsight is 2020 for us here and now in the 2020s, um, because you know the Washington courts didn't know at the time that Jane and Patricia were his victims just ten months earlier. Um, But these are repeat offenders, and we're learning that now, like so many years later, that just because they get out of jail doesn't mean that they've been rehabilitated. Seems like for some of these guys, only jail, old age, and death are going to stop them. So this guy is not too keen on staying in jail and he's going to end up escaping from prison 16 years later in 1994. And this is before Washington state took on the mandatory DNA collection law for their convicted prisoners to get CODIS, you know, more up and running. So did he know that this was coming? Probably not because I don't think that they would really advertise that to the inmates. Um, Maybe it was just that the timing was right. In any case, he goes on the lamb, and he's pretty much going by an alias for the rest of his life. He gets himself back to California and he gets pretty South in California. He gets, ends up over in Fresno, which is still really not too far off from the San Luis Obispo area. Um, I think it's just like a few hours. So it, it's not like he's just crossing over the California border and just like staying put in Northern California. In 2014, Martinez decides that he's going to turn himself in to the Washington State Police because he knows that they still want him back. Um, He did escape prison after all. Um, So does he have a guilty conscience? I mean, at this point, he's 65 years old, um, but no. He had recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So since he has no health coverage, this is when he decided to call on the state for some help. What a dick. What a fucking asshole. After everything he's done over the years, all the pain, all the suffering he's caused so many people, this cock sucker actually calls up the police to turn himself in so he can get some end-of-life care. I don't even know what to say. I mean, talk about rubbing salt in the wounds of the people whose lives he's ruined and the fucking taxpayers. At the time, no one knew that he had killed our California ladies, but everyone thought that he was just coming back to jail after being on the run for 20 years, but he's still saying, yeah, I'm dying, help me out here. The fucking balls, man. Piece of shit, Arthur Rudy Martinez- will die in jail in Washington State in June of 2014, not quite making it to his 66th birthday. But how great would it have been for us to have this case solved while he was still locked up for those few months? Would have been nice for him to serve all of his prison time for all of his crimes, of course, but even if we were able to have Jane and Patricia's families have their day in court so they could give their victim statements, that would have been great too, if anything. So how did they actually figure out that it was this this guy here. Well, when they zeroed in on him through his brother, police traced his steps and of course they pretty quickly figured out that he was dead. So, well, that sucks, but um, at least they wanted to try to get some of his DNA um, so they could test the DNA against the evidence just to be sure because if it's a match, then they can put the case to bed and the family will get some answers like what we're going to find out here. So they do do some digging And they get in touch with his last known girlfriend and they talk to her. And she's also like in her mid-60s, I'm sure. I don't really know her exact age, but we're assuming that she was in her 60s. And they talk to her and they ask her about her life with him and they probe for any clues that might seal the deal on the case. And they ask her, hey, do you have anything of his still laying around? Anything that might have his DNA on it? And she does. This lady goes looking through the house and she comes out of the bathroom with a razor that had been sitting in her medicine cabinet since before he turned himself in five years ago. Can you believe it? Holy shit. Wow. my husband now has some issues with my housekeeping, but what if you should meet this lady? I mean, this is perfect for our purposes though, because this razor has just been sitting there, not being touched, not being used by anyone else, and It's got some DNA on it from our guy Martinez. So they send the razor out to the lab and it's a fucking match. Oh my God. So over 40 years for these ladies, 40 years for their friends and family, which is way too long, but thank God we can get some satisfaction finally from this old lady and her dirty medicine cabinet. (laughs) So could this piece of shit have been caught? Unfortunately, yes. Police had that folder full of mugshots and photos during that initial investigation back when Jane and Pat were killed. And Martinez was in that folder of mugshots. And they had that witness, remember, that said that she saw a guy get in the car. But they never showed her the pictures. They only showed the family the pictures. So now that they have this guy, they, they're still, you know, trying to make sure that all the pieces fit together aside from the DNA. They're going to go to her and they're going to say, hey, will you take a look at this picture? Luckily, this lady is still around. She's not dead. And they ask her, does this look like the guys from like 40 years ago? Do you remember? And she was like, yep, that's the guy. So where the fuck were the police asking her this back in 1978, just a few days after Jane was killed? Like, I'm a police officer lover. I'm a police department lover. I'm a law enforcement lover. But I don't get why they're not asking her. Isn't that what witnesses are supposed to do? Aren't they supposed to look at mugshots, pick people out of lineups? Aren't you supposed to, like, interview a person, get more information from other sources, go back and ask the person to verify? Isn't that how murder investigations are supposed to be conducted? I mean, am I crazy? Is it written somewhere you can only talk to a witness once in San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department? I don't know. Now here's a little tidbit though, from a 1978 article about Jane and Patricia's murders. Detective Sergeant Hasty tells, told us that the County had 65 murders in the past 10 years and all but five of them had been solved, including Jane and Pat's and great on the face of this, this sounds like a really great track record. You've got 90% success rate in your department, but now that we're looking back and you're finding out you're not even showing a photograph to a freaking eyewitness of a possible suspect, what the fuck? If that's the kind of detectives you got going on over there, how are these other murders being solved so well? Was like every other murder in San Luis Obispo like done like in full of, in front of multiple eyewitnesses? I don't get it. Anyway, I'm sorry. I hate to go on a tangent and, be, like, and come down on the police so hard, but it, it, it's horrible because what's at stake? 40 years is at stake here. If they had been able to identify him after Jane's murder by this witness, they would have got him off the streets and and Pat could still be alive. The other option for being able to find him before 2019 is maybe if the prison had gotten his cheek swab before he escapes, or maybe he just, if he didn't escape, then he would have then at that point, ended up in CODIS and there would have been a hit. Before, even probably before Y2K. Um, in the end, though, most of Jane and Patricia's families have actually passed before Martinez was discovered. So, in our case here, we've got a lot of family members that w- were not able to see any kind of resolution in their loved ones' case. And uh, it's, it's pretty tragic, in my opinion. Can we um, explain Jane's and Pat's murders? I mean, I'm going to go back to the tallyho. I mean, I think the best that we can come up with is that he, like, talked himself into Jane's car and Pat's house, and then he went from there. The tally-ho, I just, I got to think this has got something, it has got to be something to do with it. Maybe he was a regular. Um, maybe he stalked them, or at least knew them at the bar enough, as, you know, like, regular bar patrons know each other. Um, maybe he was able to get them comfortable around him. So when the time came, they kind of knew him, so they had their guard down. You know, like, oh, hey, it's already from the bar. You know, oh, and he's like, oh, hey, can I get a ride? Or, you know, I didn't know you lived on this block. My friend lives here. Hey, lady, nice dog. Can I use your phone? And he's in. And then at that point, maybe he thought, well, you know what? I got to skip town because now I'm realizing I'm going to start setting myself up for a pattern. And I don't want people, anybody catching on to me. That's the only thing I could think of. I don't know. I think it's as good a theory as any because I don't see anything out there about theories. And, you know, here I am. I'm the one with the mic. (laughs) Now we have to, of course, go to the question of whether or not there's other victims out there that have not been reported. He's got the 48-year-old and the 26-year-old in Selma in 1967. He's got Pat and Patricia in in 77 and 78. Just a few months later, multiple rapes up in Washington State. So that's six, and not counting prison time, that's six rapes, murders, or shootings in three years of free time. He escaped prison in '94, putting him at 46 years old at that point. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, this guy's photos—like, I mean, they're mug shots, so I don't have any like regular family photos that I could find online, but they're—they're they're pretty scary. I'm thinking if he had the body to escape jail at 46 years old, then he probably still had the body type to be able to rape and murder when he got out, which begs a question of, you know, which makes us think we have to consider the kind of life that he was living when he was living on the lamb. Was he associating with women who may not have had the strongest of family ties because of his type of lifestyle? or maybe he was making sure to hide more bodies cause he really didn't like jail. Apparently he was able to get out. Um, I don't know. Maybe his later victims cases just haven't been solved yet. Maybe there, maybe there are known, um, you know, cold cases where the victims are identified, um, and DNA samples were taken and they're just fortunately still sitting on shelves in cold case units around the country. Or in this case, I guess, you know, California this or the Pacific Northwest. Or he got out and he got clean. Mm. We know that he's got this last girlfriend, um, and he was familiar enough with her that he was leaving a razor in her house. I don't know if they lived together or not, but I mean, we'll never know, I guess, if he had any other victims, unless another victim is identified, um, but we'll never be able to say for sure that he didn't kill. So there's that. Sad to say I was not able to find a closing tribute. um, Sad to say I was not able to find a closing tribute for Jane's, from Jane's family. Um, But we're going to give this um, overall tribute to Monica, Pat's niece. She tells us, quote, It's amazing that we finally have closure on it. I'm sad to think that he's gone and he won't stand trial. He's not going to pay for his crimes. But at the same time, we do have the closure now. And that is the case of the late 1970s murders of Jane Morton Antones and Patricia Irene Dwyer. Yeah, so it, it's pretty sad when we have these cases that when we look back on them, it was uh, some pretty big oversights by the original police department or sheriff's department that worked the case back in the day. And it turns out maybe we could have solved it a lot sooner and gotten some more justice, um, c- especially considering Pat Dwyer and all the victims uh, this hole had up in uh, Washington State. But that it is what it is. So hopefully we just learn as we go. And for this week's um, unsolved, could we, should we, can we? Um, this is a pretty interesting one. This is also a learn from your mistakes type of case because there is a wrongful conviction involved in it. I'm going to take the Mon- Monterey County now. I don't know if it's an online newspaper. or Oh, it looks like it's an online weekly newspaper. Um, this is from Monterey County. This is right just north of um, San Luis Obispo County. And um, this article is from December 4th of 2014. So we have a wrongful conviction. And so now um, we have this woman whose murder is back on the table, back in the files. On the morning of July 15th, 1985, a 22-year-old woman got a phone call from her mother's coworker. It was unlike her mom, Paula Durocher, or is it Durocher? D-U-R-O-C-H-E-R. Sorry. It was unlike her to be a no-show at the Madden Company, which sold copiers and office equipment in Monterey. The colleague quickly rang Paula's daughter at the nearby camera shop where she worked. Anita Campo left a regular customer in charge and drove a few blocks to her mom's place near the Monterey County Fairgrounds. And she knocked and there was no answer, but she could hear the television on. She climbed the stairs to the second-floor neighbor's apartment, and from there, she could peer down and see that the screen door on the patio was open. Her mom always kept the sliding screen door shut to keep her three cockatiels, who had free reign of the apartment, from flying away. If she didn't before, Campo knew that something was wrong now, and she let herself in through the back door. What she saw next remains difficult to describe and even harder to process. The coffee pot was still on, and a half-eaten steak was left on the table. A cigarette was left behind in the ashtray, and it was burned into a cylinder of ash. Paula, 40, was wearing her customary teal-colored bathrobe. On her chest, three gaping two-inch-long wounds were just starting to crust over with a red-brown color. Each wound penetrated more than four inches and punctured her heart. The autopsy report would later list the cause of death as stab wounds to the chest seconds to minutes. Certain details would become more important later. Nothing was ransacked and nothing was missing except for the steak knife, which was the presumed murder weapon, and it was never found. The pursuit of justice would ultimately send a serial burglar with an expensive heroin habit to prison for life, even though he maintains to this day that he didn't do it and the evidence is shaky at best, and it would also create more questions than answers. Among them Whose DNA wound up underneath Paula's fingernails? What's enough evidence to send a man to jail for life? Can you get a fair trial if you're a career criminal? And who's there to help you when you're convicted of something you swear you didn't do? And there's a final question. If Paula didn't eat that steak, and the autopsy reveals that her stomach was empty, then who did? So this article was written in 2014, and it goes on to talk about the person the man who was convicted of her, her brutal murder, Jack Sagan. Um, he's, he was not a good guy. Uh, he's got a lot of violent offenses. Um, he even started, you know, burglarizing at 14 years old. Um, but he did get exonerated from this murder in 19, in 2019. So now we do have uh, Paula Rocher. We have her murder, like we said, back on the table that needs to be solved. Uh, clearly I picked this because of the DNA that was found under her fingernails. There's no mention here in this um, brief overview if she was sexually assaulted, although um, hate to say it, but most, most ladies who are killed with up-close-and-personal attacks are most likely sexually assaulted in the process. Um, but hopefully they'll be able to come up with something here. And as we know, California is good on the genetic genealogy investigations. Hopefully we get something out of this uh, sooner rather than later, as this did happen back in 1985, and um, there's still a lot of family that needs some kind of answers. So that rep- wraps it up here for us on The Ties That Find this week, and we will see each other in two weeks. Once again, thank you all so much for the listens and the uh, interactions on the, on the socials. Um, you can also find me at The Ties That Find for sources, photographs, and the script.